I do think that one of the attributes of racial whiteness is this belief that you can speak with authority about someone else's experience that you yourself have not lived. Mm. And this is a, a relatively common thing where if I'm in a space with mostly white people, to hear those white people speaking authoritatively about someone else's experience. And to me, that seems to betray a profound lack of humility. But I do think that's one of the forming attributes of whiteness, is it leads us to believe that we have this bird's eye view on the world and that whatever is white is normative, is right. And so we can speak with that kind of hubris. Welcome to season three of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, hello to all of our Shades of Hope podcast listeners and family. You know, we're at the place now in season three. We have a family. We have a group of mm-hmm. folk that uh, listen to us, Pastor Jeff, quite often. And we are grateful for the growth of this podcast. And I think that one of the reasons that our podcast is growing is of the quality. I mean, the incredible individuals and technicians and tacticians mm-hmm. of this conversation that we're having that I call a sacred conversation around racial equity and racial justice. And so, Pastor Jeff, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing really good. It's good to be with you again, as always. It's just fun to have, like you said, these sacred conversations. I feel like we always leave in the best possible way, larger than when we started. Yeah. Right? That the folks that we've had join us have contributed to that community that you're describing, enlarging our understanding of what God's doing in the world. And so it's always just good to be with you. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure. And we are in some very, very difficult, challenging times. And it's very important that we hear from God's men and women who are hearing his voice and are trying very hard to make sure that the church becomes that beloved community that he's called us to be. And man, am I excited about the guests we have today. And so, Pastor Jeff, would you do the honors? Yes, it is my pleasure to introduce our listeners to our guest today. David Swanson is the pastor of the New Community Covenant Church, which is a multicultural congregation in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood. He helps to lead the church, but also the New Community Outreach, which is a not-for-profit that collaborates with the community to reduce sources of trauma. And he's a speaker, an author of a book that we're going to talk about, Rediscipling the White Church. The subtitle is From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. This is how I got to know David first by his writing and then had the opportunity to reach out and have some conversations with him during the pandemic. But I am so excited to introduce you today to David Swanson. David, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. I'm genuinely looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, Rediscipling the White Church, we're going to get into that a little bit. But before we do that, could you just tell us a little bit about your church, the church you lead, the neighborhood that that church 
is in and how you came to be the pastor of that church. Sure, yeah. So New Community Covenant Church is celebrated 12 years this Easter. Thanks be to God and God alone for that simple (laughs) fact. We are an intentionally multicultural, multiracial congregation, roughly distributed African-American, Asian-American, and white. We're located in the Bronzeville community, which if if folks are not familiar with Chicago or the south side of the city, I like to say it's Chicago's Harlem. So it sort of has roughly the same timeline, same historical significance. This was the one area of our city where Black people could move with a degree of safety in the years following the Civil War and the dismantling of Reconstruction efforts. And so lots of really well-known political folks, cultural folks who have lived in our community remains a very important neighborhood in our city. And so we've gotten to do ministry in Bronzeville for 12 years alongside of some incredible churches that do just great work who have taught us so much over the past decade or so. We really are who we are today because of those friendships. And are you the planter of the church? I am, and this is important. I am white. I am quite white, and this neighborhood is not. And Mm -hmm. so I was helping out kind of behind the scenes early on. We assumed that God would call an African-American pastor to lead this multicultural church in a Black neighborhood. And I won't go into all the details, but just a few weeks before our first service, I was tapped to be the church planter for this congregation, which which messed me up in all kinds of ways. But in God's <laughs> providence, it's probably the only way I would have had the opportunity to serve our church. Gosh, that's an amazing story. So 12 years, so you're no longer a church plant. You're a established community in a particular neighborhood. What have been some of the challenges that you've seen in establishing a community in this particular way, being very intentionally multicultural, multi-ethnic. What are some of the things that you've experienced over these last 12 years? One of my mentors very early on said something like, the hardest thing about church planting is learning to be the church. Hmm. I didn't quite understand then what he meant, because at that point, I just felt like (laughs) the hardest thing was to get a couple people to come on a Sunday morning, you know, (laughs) just get a few folks to show up. But I came to really understand that, and I still believe that, which is to say, how is it that this seemingly random collection of people, women and men who wouldn't otherwise know each other, how do we learn to be the people of God together? How do we learn to be that city on a hill, that new temple, that people who God says that we are? We don't want to just build a church. We don't want to just go to church. We want to live as the people of God and come to see one another as truly as sisters and brothers in Christ, you know, who share more Mm -hmm. in common through the shed blood of Jesus than we do with a biological family who wouldn't confess Jesus. And that is our ongoing challenge. And what I think what I've realized is that we're never going to get there. There, There's no arrival. And Mm -hmm. I've come to make peace with that. As a church, you're always hospitable. There's always new people coming who are new to this vision of living as this reconciled people. And so I think that's one of the challenges and also incredible gifts of a church that's leaning hard into reconciliation is that Mm. this is just what we do. We learn to be the people of God and we will continue to learn to be the people of God until Jesus returns. Yeah, that's beautiful. So can I ask a question, David? I mean, how does a white man like you, what prepared you for such a task? How did you get to this space that you didn't just say, well, okay, well, I'll do it for a few months, but actually you're very good at it. 
What's prepared you for a church like this? Yeah, I'll let other people decide on how good or not I am at it, Pastor. <laughs> as we know, people have different opinions about these yes, things absolutely. as pastors. I mean, part of it was growing up. My parents were missionaries in Venezuela and Ecuador, so I grew up in cross-cultural settings. We moved back to the United States. This was in the early 90s. We moved back to Southern California. These were the years of the O.J. Simpson trial, of the mm-hmm. Rodney King beating, of yeah. legislation in California being suggested that would keep children of undocumented immigrants from attending public schools. And so that was, in some ways, my introduction to life in the United States, and I'm not sure how Deeply, I processed it at that time, but I do think that that impacted me in some ways. So fast forwarding, as I was starting into ministry, serving in a church I really loved in a majority white setting, but really kind of feeling out of place and desiring to be a part of something that was more representative of the kingdom and learning that there were actually intentionally multiracial churches out there, which was a new thing for me. And that was, man, the light bulb went off for me at that point. And I didn't think that I necessarily would pastor one of those churches, but boy, I really wanted to be a part of something like that. And that's how God began to lead me into this more intentional reconciliation movement. And, you know, as far as my own disposition, I don't think that I have arrived. I think that I am very much still in process and I love learning. I love growing. And I believe the gospel is actually true, which means that I'm able to confess and to repent when I mess up. And, you know, when I breathe deeply of this nation's racialized air and it comes out of me, I have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness from my sisters and brothers and to experience that reconciliation and that grace of the gospel. Yeah. So it sounds like proximity, being in the literal space with people that weren't homogeneous. That's right. You know, just all white people. And so you were able to pick up and have an affinity to be okay in environments where you were maybe at sometimes in a minority. Oftentimes, most of the time these days. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. I appreciate you saying that because I can't say enough about the friends and the mentors, the spiritual directors, the pastors over the years who have spiritually formed me into Mm -hmm. a, a person who now I can't imagine myself outside of these spaces. This is who I belong to. And and so I'm profoundly grateful. You know, I remember early on thinking, man, how do you get mentors in this work? How do you? And one of my professors said, you know, well, if you don't have flesh and blood mentors, you know, you turn to authors, just read a lot of books and let them mentor you. And so I did that initially and that was helpful. But what I say to people now is in addition to that, we ought to be praying for those kinds of relationships because I believe God wants Mm. to give us and to invite us more deeply into the whole body of Christ. And I can testify that that's happened to me over the years and just how rich my life is because of that. I sense a level of humility that I think that growing up in a privileged environment and relating to those other folks, sometimes there's a lack of humility on the part of white pastors. But I sense in your situation, there's a level of it. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I think that that has been refined in me over the years. I think initially that came out more as deep insecurity, which still shows up sometimes, no doubt about Mm -hmm. it. I think the Holy Spirit has refined that in some ways into more godly humility. But I think you're right. I do think that one of the attributes of racial whiteness is this belief that you can speak with authority about someone else's experience that you yourself have not lived. Mm. And this is a, a relatively common thing where if I'm in a space with mostly white people, to hear those white people 
speaking authoritatively about someone else's experience. And to me, that seems to betray a profound lack of humility. Mm-hmm. But I do think that's one of the forming attributes of whiteness is it leads us to believe that we have this bird's eye view on the world and that whatever is white is normative, is right. And so we can speak with that kind of hubris. So I hope that that's one of the ways that I'm being sanctified <laughs> over time, <laughs> that the Holy Spirit is uh, is changing me deeply in that way, to not lead with that area but with curiosity instead and to say, you know, boy, there's a whole lot that I don't know. And I can be curious about that. I can wonder, you know, what is it like to live in someone else's shoes or to grow up in a different community than I did? And I can actually be shaped and grow from that. That's powerful. Amen. The suggestion in your book is that this is not only an implicit bias in the culture that we grew up in, but that also it's found deep within the white church. Mm-hmm. And you had to invent a word in order to communicate your thesis, which I love. And you didn't disguise where you were going <laughs> with the book either, rediscipling right. the white church. So just give us a little bit about why this book was important for you to write. It's about two years old. Mm-hmm. I got it hot off the presses from a mutual friend of ours, actually mm-hmm. sent it to me, John Houghton. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at it. He signed it for me. Why, why was this book important for you to write at the time that you wrote it? It's such a remedial thought now, but to me, it was a profound moment of realizing that for many white Christians, the discipleship that they were experiencing in their congregations was not leading them into deeper proximity and solidarity with the diverse body of Christ, but was rather leaving them content with the segregated status quo that so marks the American church. And I just thought, boy, that's something, isn't it? Why is it that our discipleship efforts don't seem to be making much of a dent in the segregated nature of of the American church? Why is it that white Christians seem to have more in common with white non-Christians than with Christians of color who we share this profound faith in the Lord Jesus? That was that moment of curiosity for me. And I wanted to try to understand this problem through the lens of discipleship, because this is what we do as Christians, right? We are called to make disciples. And my sense of discipleship is that we follow Jesus to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus does. And it felt like in this area, at least, we were not becoming like Jesus as white Christians. We were not doing the sorts of things that we would see Jesus do as we read the Gospels. So it was that itch of a question that kind of sent me down that road. And, you know, not to be overly simplistic about it, but my sense is that there is this racial formation in the culture and that for the most part, white churches just have ignored that. And so we've not seen the the application of discipleship to it. That's very generous. I mean, I think at our best, we've ignored it, but maybe at our worst, we've promoted it, right? Yeah. We speak often about a Somebody that we hope is going to be a friend of ours at some point, but Robert Jones in his book, White Too Long, just really does a great job at laying the honest truth before us in how we have perpetuated it. It's not just that we didn't see it. It's that we saw it and we decided to do something else. And that's where it gets really dangerous. And I think that's important to say because... There's a way of viewing history which says, well, people were just a product of their times. You know, this was just so. And there's, okay, sure. But there are too many exceptions to that historically. White people 
who chose to live against that status quo, who chose not to perpetuate the kind of thing you're describing there. And those are the inconvenient figures of history, right? That should make us examine our own day, right? And say, you know what? We actually have a choice to live differently today as well. Yeah. Can I ask a basic question? When you talk about rediscipling Mm -hmm. the white church, can you really rediscipline individuals in the arena of social justice without the first step that you take in salvific reconciliation, that is repentance? Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. repentance have to be a baseline for rediscipling white folk in white churches? I think it does. And I think that that's often one of those things that we have, as white Christians, have left out. We want the reconciliation without repentance. You know, we want to talk about togetherness without talking about repair. Hmm. The interaction with Zacchaeus is, for me, the real poignant (laughs) one. That one one makes me squirm big time, right? (laughs) Because it's material in nature. Hmm. It's visible. It's Hmm. measurable. The community could say, there's change. There's transformation in this man's life. He wants to make amends in a way that will be good for the entire community that he belongs to and is a part of. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that if we're going to talk about reconciliation of any kind as Christians, there has to be repentance. Now, if this is not a Christian conversation, okay, maybe it's different. But for those of us who follow Jesus, who warns us to repent away from the spirit of the age into the kingdom of heaven, then it's got to be front and center. Yeah. And that may be the, one of the first steps in the rediscipling process is getting white men and women to realize that there needs to be a recognition of repentance mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and acceptance of, of a wrong Yeah. Yeah. in That's order right. for re- repair. I want to challenge you on a word that sometimes drives black people a little off the map uh, Pastor David, and that is that word reconciliation, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because we really never have been consoled. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I wrestle with that as well. I hang on to it because some of my mentors, people like Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, keep hanging on to the word as well. And so as, she does. as long as I'm being mentored by her and she's hanging <laughs> on to it, then I'm not going to let go of it either because <laughs> I, I trust her. Yeah, she's a great lady. She really is. Yeah. I think for me, I want to think about reconciliation in terms of what Christ has accomplished for us. The issue of the reality of racial segregation, racial oppression, racial injustice is a relatively recent human social construction that comes after, if we were to simply look historically, after what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so for me, the language of reconciliation is not to say we're trying to get back to an old status quo. Rather, it is to say that for true solidarity to happen, for us to truly live into this beloved community, we have to experience the miracle of the reconciliation that Christ accomplished for us, that that we don't have it in ourselves to go back to some pristine utopian moment that frankly just doesn't exist. We need that divine intervention, that divine sustenance in this work. So to be honest, Pastor, these days I've tended to use the language of racial justice 
and reconciliation, yeah. <laughs> just to make it very clear what I don't mean by that language. Great. Thank you. But I'm, I'm also always looking for what's the biblical vernacular that we can be sure. You know, righteousness is another one of those words that's kind of been leached of its power. We we tend to think of righteousness as somehow piety rather than as this robust word mm-hmm. that includes societal shalom, like we read in the Old Testament scriptures. So, anyways, that's my own bias, but I do understand why people are wary of it. Well, I really appreciate your answer. I think it's right on. And it's a good angle to look at that whole word, reconciliation. I see where you're coming from. And I think, you know, Pastor Jeff and I are so grateful that pastors like yourself are beginning to really make sure your conversations are theologically based. And, mm-hmm. uh, so we, we love that. that. That was a great a great answer for me. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I wonder about this. In your book, you use Emerson and Smith's framework of, you know, the white toolkit mm-hmm. that allows us to kind of navigate without thinking about this. And I wonder if, I haven't thought about this until you just said this, this sort of stripping of biblical righteousness of its social power that's embedded in the concept from the moment we meet it in the Exodus all the way through. But I wonder if that's one of the barriers for Christians, white Christians stepping into this space, is that individualized gospel. And so if we think about the gospel only about our soul, we strip that word righteousness and we make it only about what God is doing in us, but mm-hmm. not necessarily about what God is doing in the world. I just made a statement. I wish I would have had a question at the end of that. Let me ask it like this. What are the dangers from your perspective of a individualized understanding of the gospel? I mean, I think individualism is, it's that cultural reality for white people that often exists just below the surface. And until we identify it, we are going to be spinning our wheels on this stuff because we're using the same language, but we're talking right past each other, right? That's right. And so I do think that's really poignant of you to point that out. I think it's difficult work, though, to actually get white Christians to start grappling with the depths of individualism. And I don't mean to say that individualism is all bad. I think there's all sorts of things about, you know, individual liberties and rights. These are good things. But to only be able to experience the world through that individualistic lens, rather than seeing yourselves as belonging to a people who have been shaped in certain ways and participating in life in certain ways, is deeply, well, we just miss out on a lot, right? And we miss out on the reading of scripture like you just described. So how do we do that? You know, how in our white churches do we surface these assumptions that we've just assumed to be neutral, but actually carry a kind of interpretive framework within them that keeps us from seeing, well, scripture in more holistic ways, but also our sisters and brothers in the faith who don't necessarily navigate the world through that same individualistic lens, right? Who are moving through the world as disciples from a more corporate or communal or collectivistic experience where we really belong to one another and we experience discipleship in that way. That's a huge challenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, I don't want to speak for all white people, but I'll just speak for myself. I mean, I grew up in a context where we regularly heard things like, if you were the only person that accepted Jesus in all of humanity, that God would have still sent his son to die for you. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. sounds very sentimental, but it's just not theologically accurate. I mean, God's restoring the creation. I'm a part of it, so I'm important, but I'm not the center of this thing. He's the center of the thing. That's right. 
So how have you, in your pastoral work, just practically, what are some of the ways that you have tried to help surface some of that bad theology, that individualistic theology that we get stuck in? And I think we get stuck in it because it really makes us feel good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to share something that we're trying right now, and it might be a train wreck. So we can talk in a I year or two, it. and I love like, it. oh, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> so our church, before we had even you know corporate worship services, we started with small groups. And so mm-hmm. we kind of had a small group model for discipleship. And what we found about probably about eight years in was that our white and Asian American people really gravitated to our small groups. A much smaller percentage of the African American people in the church were participating in the small group ministry. Okay. So that's not helping us fulfill our vision as a multiracial church. we got to look at that a little bit seriously. So, so what are some of these reasons? So we're listening, we're talking different of our African American leaders in our church, you know, having this conversation together and said, well, in many black people's church experience, Discipleship happens midweek, all church Bible study, and it's going to be led by church leaderships. There's a sense of trust about who's actually leading you in this way, rather than asking me to come to some stranger's house I've never been to before. I don't really like, are you a safe person? (laughs) Is this a safe place? And like, what are your credentials? Who are you to open up the scriptures, right? So we're like, oh, that, okay, yes, that's something we hadn't really deeply considered. So what we're going to do is we're going to add a kind of church Bible study to the mix. And so we added a midweek Bible study in addition to our small groups. I led it. It was here at our church office. And it was great. It was me and all the black people in the church. (laughs) So I was like, well, that's... That's also not quite getting us where we're trying to go is this reconciling <laughs> congregation, right? We did it a couple of years. It was a great step. And then during the pandemic, we said, okay, we have a reason now to really evaluate this thing. So we had some real, and we tried to get like below the surface to the level of assumptions. And it was actually our associate pastor, who's an African-American woman. And she finally kind of said it in a way that cracked the code for us. And she said, you know, for many of our white and Asian American people, they're coming to church through this individual lens. They're navigating the world as kind of autonomous individuals. And so they have a felt need to build community. And that's the language that we've used over the years, building community. They want it. They think community is valuable, but they don't see themselves as having it. So we got to build it. And small groups are an awesome way to do that. She said, but if that's not your starting point, if your starting point is more corporate or communal in nature, you start coming to this church. Your assumption is just, I'm a part of this church now because I'm coming. (laughs) Like, this is us now. This is we now. And so the notion of needing to build community feels really like out of joint and out of step. Hmm. So she said, from that starting point, you want to just have these phases like a, a midweek Bible study, for example, where you're doing Bible study, maybe you're doing worship, but the community is just being nurtured because people are a part of it. And, you know, this shows my own naivete and ignorance. Like that was a kind of mind blowing moment for me. And so our leader said, all right, let's let's give it a shot. So we wiped out our small group ministry (laughs) and restarted an all church Bible study, just old school, all church Bible study. And this was the first year that we did that. And it's been good. And it's been much more diverse than our other attempts have been. Mm -hmm. We see this as a three year change process because the level of change isn't programmatic. It's at this level of cultural assumption, culture, right? So our white people have been struggling and we've talked about this publicly. So I'm not sharing, you know, airing dirty laundry or anything like this because it's like, yeah, but how are we going to build community? I get that I'm supposed to come to all church, but but how are we going to build community? How am I going to find community? And we're having to say, we, we actually just need you to trust us on this. 
that we think mm-hmm. if you keep showing up, you're going to actually find yourself deeply embedded within a community. It's just going to happen differently than you've been conditioned to think through a highly individualistic lens. So I'm sorry, that was pretty long, but that's the no. practical way that we're wrestling through this thing right now as a church. I feel like I now need to send you a consulting fee. <laughs> for helping us think through some of the exact same things. We're trying to figure out how do we become a little more culturally accessible. And we have an African-American woman on our staff too. And when she first started, she's like, people are inviting me to come to their house church. She's like, I'm, I don't want to (laughs) go. I was like, you don't have to go, but that cultural miss, you know, unless you have people who are leading who are not white and have authority to speak into the way that you do things, you never get it because you just think, well, we do it the right way and we need to get everybody else Mm -hmm. on board Mm -hmm. instead of thinking maybe our way is a way, right? Maybe there are other ways. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with small group ministry. Like I've had good experiences in it, but there were some assumptions that I had simply missed that were really significant for folks in our congregation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what I'm hearing here too is, your incredible commitment to really the intentionality of community versus forcing a certain segments of your community to assimilate. Mm. And for you to turn on a dime, the whole ministry like that, just to make sure you're hearing from your African-American constituents, it's, it's very unusual because usually we as African-Americans have to take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And no one's really listening. No one took the time to say, well, why is it that you're not feeling at home here? Mm-hmm. And for you to do what you did, Pastor David, is really a great a great testament to your personal intentionality in making this, this thing work. Because you talk about in your book that before you can do diversity, yeah. there need to be some other thoughts yeah. and some other intentional steps around rediscipling. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Talk about a little bit about that. Man, I appreciate you, you teeing that up because I think that that's in majority white settings. Historically, this is how we've gone about so-called reconciliation ministries is we try, let's just try to add some diversity to the status quo. It's yeah. an assimilationist model. And it's a model that I believe has actually done a lot of damage in different settings. It's done damage to white Christians in that they've attempted that model. It goes well for a little while because people of color take, you know, okay, you want to do this? Cool, let's do this. And then they find out, well, you don't Mm -hmm. actually want to do this. You just want some diversity in the room. You're not actually after justice. Exactly. So then the white Christians are burned. They're like, oh yeah, we tried that thing once. We tried that racial justice thing once. It didn't work. So we're not going to do that again. My heart particularly breaks though for those people of color who said, okay, yeah, let's be a part of this. We also believe in this vision of the beloved community. And then they discover over time that what is valuable about them is simply their presence and not their lived experience, not their lived concerns, not the way they actually experience the world. And that's deeply troubling. And so I I do think that for me is cheap diversity, that kind of veneer of Mm -hmm. diversity, that veneer of justice and reconciliation. If we're really going to be after this thing, then we have to be willing to hold a lot of this stuff loosely as we hear from one another. And man, I realize that that could sound really difficult and hard, and it can be, but it's also really good too. I mean, to <laughs> to have those kinds of conversations, to have those light bulb moments where you go, oh my yeah. gosh, 
I never even thought about it. Like, that's a possibility. Like, we can do it that way, too. God can work like that, too. I hadn't even thought of, like, that's pretty great, right? Like, that's yeah. a, that's an exciting <laughs> that's right. thing to get to be a part of, to see that God operates in broader ways than you had assumed and that we get to experience the Holy Spirit's work in these ways outside of our own assumed constraints. Wow. Man, it's good. Powerful. Yeah. The beauty of the book is that you give very practical practices for white churches to engage in without the need for somebody else to tell them what to do. I think that's the gold for me because I think there are a lot of pastors out there who are like, I know there's a problem. And I think there are a lot of pastors out there that want to do something about the problem. And I think we believe in that in order for us to do something, someone of color is going to have to come in and tell us what to do. Or maybe differently, we expect mm -hmm. people to come in and tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. This is an equipping book. And the practices that you offer, I mean, it's basically a reimagined liturgy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how to think differently about the things that we already do. Yeah. But one of the chapters was striking for me, and it's the chapter that you titled Practicing Salvation from Superiority. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about why that was an important practice to include. Yeah, well, I have been struck by these testimonies I've heard over the years from white people who have come to see God's heart for justice. And so often these are second conversions. And I, those are probably inevitable as in the way of Jesus, right? We're always going to be seeing, but boy, it sure seems like a consistent theme that we have separated a personal salvation from participating in the work of the kingdom. And that feels unnecessary to me. And Dallas Willard was the one who gave me some language for this. You know, he says something like, you know, if you start with evangelism, you're always going to have to get to discipleship later. And so you're always kicking that can down the road. He said, but if you start mm -hmm. with discipleship, evangelism is going to take care of itself. You right. start by wow. calling people away from the world, calling people to follow Jesus, calling people to become like Jesus wherever they are. Evangelism is going to take care of itself. And so I thought, well, what if we thought about evangelism through the lens of discipleship with this idea of racial justice in mind? So that as we call people to start following Jesus, we just have this lens already that you're going to have to leave some stuff behind in order to follow Jesus. That's true of everybody. I don't think you read anybody in the Gospels who doesn't have to leave something behind in order to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And as white people, one of these things that we'll need to leave behind is this sense of superiority, whether that's a conscious or unconscious a sense of superiority, the way that this nation has formed us, the way that our society has shaped us. So I want to put that on the front end. I don't want to wait for some second conversion. I want white people to know, you know what? There's actually a cost to following Jesus. That some of the stuff that has just attached itself to you by virtue of your birth into this country, you're going to have to shake free of that with the power of the Holy Spirit. And also look at how good this is as we follow Jesus into the kingdom. Look right. who we get to do this with. Look how it's going to change our lives. Look how much more interesting and creative life is going to be. Look who we get yes. to be in relationship and partnership with because we're following Jesus into the kingdom. So there's always a cost, but because it's Jesus, <laughs> there's always resurrection on the other side of that thing as well. That's right. Wow. That's right. Wow. What a good word. I had to pause a moment because, I mean, you just helped me with a sermon I'm getting ready to preach. <laughs> See, there's another consulting fee coming your way. Another um, consulting fee, <laughs> uh, for sure. 
Let me ask another question. In your world of thinking and the way you are trying to design this approach to genuine, I call it transformational, work within the church and not transactional. Mm -hmm. Do you know of a situation where what you set up in your ministry is the reverse to where there's a black pastor that white people are literally sitting under to being discipled in this arena? It is pretty rare in my experience. I have over the past couple of years since the book has come out, had the chance to interact with a lot of clergy, a lot of pastors serving in majority white settings. And so I actually have connected with a few African-American pastors, okay, mostly men, but recently a woman as well who's serving in Atlanta, who are serving majority white churches. In my experience, these are mostly what we would call mainline denominations mm, rather yeah. than evangelical okay. denominations. But even so, with, even within the mainline, it is pretty rare, which should be an indictment. And let me make right. the indictment even worse, Pastor. But this is also true in multiracial congregations as well. A sociologist like Dr. Corey Edwards at The Ohio State University has done a lot of work on this. And she's found that most multiracial churches are also led by white pastors. And the reason being that white people will follow white leaders yeah. and generally not particularly in faith communities, leaders of color. So this is one of the things that made me so profoundly insecure early on, to be honest with you, because I knew <laughs> that going into this. And so I just, I said, well, look, obviously this church has to have a pastor of color leading it if it's really going to be after its mission. And then so to find myself being the one in that chair really messed me up because I thought, man, I, just my presence alone is a liability to the mission of this congregation. Mm. And I'll just share briefly some of my own story here is that I had a spiritual director still to this day, same spiritual director, African-American woman. And I would just, I would lament this to her. I said, man, you know, I'm the wrong person. As a white man, I shouldn't be in this role. She would listen to me. She would listen to me. And at the end of every meeting, she would say, David, did God call you or not? And it really took about three years for me to be able to answer in the affirmative that, yes, God did call me to this. And the thing that shifted for me was understanding that this assignment for me was going to be a demonstration of how the gospel is made strong in weakness, made strong in foolishness, mm. embodied yeah. in somebody who is culturally seen as being strong and wise. But in this setting, that all had to get turned upside down so that in this white male body, I would need to express my own foolishness, my own weakness, so that the gospel could be strong and could be wise, which messed me up in all kinds of ways. And yet over the years, I certainly wouldn't trade it either. Wow. Man, what a testimony. Yeah. That is a powerful testimony. Um, I, I'm speechless because... It does require a real level of humility and transparency for what you just shared with many of our listeners who wish they had a certain percentage of your boldness. And I hope that they will grab this book and give it a reading because I think that it will unlock some, as Pastor Jeff was alluding to earlier, maybe some keys to beginning this process. I know, Pastor Jeff, you feel like it has for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just think, again, very practical, and it's a way of reimagining the work that we do in a way that also sort of re-disciples the pastoral space mm. in helping to lead your church in that direction. And so if it was first a conversion for me, 
that then is starting to seep out into the spaces where I'm able to lead. But just again, very practical and very helpful. And we can do this work on our own. Mm-hmm. Right? We have the capacity by the Holy Spirit and with the communion of the saints to be able to move towards the heart of God when it comes to the work of justice in the world. And I think this is just a practical output of the work that you've been doing. So thank you very much for for sharing that with us and for the continuing conversion of your own (laughs) pastoral work. I appreciate how you said that because I do think many white churches, when they get convicted on this, the tendency to say, well, let me bring my black pastor friend to come and preach or to come and Mm -hmm. do this Bible study or whatever. And what we're asking people to do is to till up very hard soil, very rocky soil, very beat down soil. And that's our work as white pastors and ministry leaders. Our work is to till up that soil. And that's the discipleship work. And I believe that over time, as that soil gets turned over and becomes more fruitful, well, now that's the moment to invite your pastor friend to come and preach. Have them preach whatever they want to preach. Just join the sermon (laughs) series. You know, don't bring them in on MLK Sunday, you know, necessarily, you know, just any time, right? Because the soil has now been turned up and there's fruitfulness and there's a hospitality and there's an openness to hear from God through the diversity of the saints. So, yeah, I appreciate you, Pastor Jeff, for framing it that way. The thing that I was so struck by, I mean, culturally, Chicago is not Indianapolis. And I don't know if you know anything about Indianapolis, but we're a a small town getting bigger. Mm -hmm. But we don't have the history, like you even just spoke of. We don't have a Harlem in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. That's not our story. The thing that struck me just about the conference that was more implied than it was explicit was the partnerships that were happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear you speak about the importance of church partnership in the work that you're doing. Yeah, boy, I love that question so much because the devil is in the details. And I mean that explicitly. I do think that's (laughs) Mm -hmm. where the devil derails us a lot of times is in the details. And so I think if we can acknowledge that there are all kinds of opportunities for partnership. I was looking at my phone a second ago because a pastor friend of mine in the neighborhood just texted me back. I texted him right before needing some help on something. And so he's texting back to, we're going to be working on this thing together. And that's just been kind of the spirit of our neighborhood since I've been a part of this. Not with everybody, right? There's always people who kind of have their own kingdom in mind, Mm -hmm. but that's not everybody. (laughs) So yeah, I would say that for us, choosing to prioritize friendship with other churches, with nonprofits, with government officials, We do joint worship services with different churches in our community. That's not just a feel-good thing for us. That's a part of mission for us that helps us live as God has called us to in our particular community. It takes people who don't need to be in the spotlight all the time. It takes people who are okay not being in the spotlight, who are kind of facilitating those friendships and those conversations, introducing people. So even at the conference that you just mentioned, our shared friend, John, introduced me Mm -hmm. to a couple people and said, David, you need to get a meal with these folks. But I think that's what the church is equipped to do, right? Of anybody who can do that, of anybody who can build bridges, who can nurture relationships, it ought to be the church because we are not insecure. We are not anxious. We are not territorial. We believe we actually have access to everything that God says we have access to. And so from that starting place of abundance, I think it really does open up a ton of opportunity for creativity. Now for us, we're not a huge church. It's allowed us to say, we know what our lane is. When we started the nonprofit, Mm -hmm. it was with input from our community. We need some help when it comes to 
restorative justice with young people. That's something that we think is important. Okay, so we build our nonprofit around that. That's what we do. And we don't have to feel guilty about not doing all these other things because we know who is doing all those other things. Right. And we can point you, right? Because we're all sitting at those tables together. So it takes time. It takes a lot of breakfasts. It takes nurturing those friendships. But boy, it's so good to get to be a part of something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You could feel it. Just the way in which the churches were interacting. Pastor Moore, I was going through their website and where you would go typically to watch online, there was an announcement that said, we are on our all church retreat. If you did not attend with us this weekend, here are three churches that you can go to in the neighborhood and worship with them. It just doesn't happen very often. And so (laughs) I think that speaks to a spirit of unity that you're trying to build and be a part of. And listen, I mean, (laughs) that's a little thing to do, right? That's not hard. But one of those churches let us use their parking lot all last summer because we don't have our own building yet. We're searching Mm -hmm. for one now. We couldn't use the building we were renting. Their building was closed, but they said, you can use our parking lot all summer long. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to take any money from us to do that. They gave us a place to worship on Sundays when we didn't have any place to worship. I mean, I could tell story after story like that of the way the churches have supported each other in our community. So it's like, man, what's the alternative? This is just too good. You know, I'm going to try to do all this by myself. Forget it. Wow. Right. I just think that spirit is infectious and invitational. And I just, Mm. it's noticeable. Like you feel that sense of cooperation and hospitality between Mm -hmm. even the pastors who were a part of that. But I just think we need more of that. And particularly in Indianapolis, we have struggled historically to cooperate without yeah. Imposing agendas on mm-hmm. other organizations mm-hmm. or groups or, you know, people trying to take advantage of the partnerships. Anyways, it just was very powerful to see that. And I appreciate you sharing your experience. Also, you're very active in the public space. We're recording this in the end of June. And just this last week, you were a part of, and I don't know if you organized it or if you were a part of organizing a die-in is what you called Mm it in response to some of the gun violence Mm -hmm. and some of the national rhetoric that's Mm -hmm. been going around around Mm -hmm. Chicago. Tell me about how you determine when and where to sort of engage in that public way. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a growth edge for me because it wasn't the model of pastoring that I grew up with was much more insular, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, it's concerned with the community itself. And I think what I've learned over the past decade or so is that to pastor in our community is to be a a pastor to the community, whether Mm. those community members ever darken the door of your church building or not is sort of besides the point. It's almost more of a parish model of of ministry. And so if there are those in our community who are hurting in some ways, there is a sense that as a pastor, I'm responsible to providing some level of engagement and care. And that happens, of course, in all sorts of different ways. So in this most recent example, when we had these mass shootings that took place in Buffalo first and then in Texas, Chicago once again sort of became this public excuse to not really engage meaningfully in in legislation that would reduce access to some of these weapons. And I thought, boy, you know, as faith leaders, it's our responsibility to tell the truth. And as faith leaders in this community, when we see the name of our city being used deceptively, 
we need to point that out because yes, Chicago yeah. has, of course, very strict gun laws, but all you have to do is step across the city lines to access right. those guns or drive about 10 minutes to the state of Indiana, whose gun laws are very different. No offense to either of you. No, we know what they are. It's just to say <laughs> yeah. there's not some invisible yep. force field around the city of Chicago. That's just not how it works. And so to use us as an example in that way, not only is deceptive, but it's it's dehumanizing because there are lots of families in our city who have experienced the worst of gun violence, a lot of young people. These are the young people we care about and get to work closely with. So for me, there was a sense of call. We need to make a public statement. And so the idea of faith leaders coming together publicly in solidarity with those who've experienced gun violence to tell the truth about why these things actually happen, and then to stage this die-in in front of a gun shop, which ends up providing a significant amount of the guns that are used in crimes in our city, felt like one of those prophetic things that Christian people are called to do on occasion. Sometimes it feels like crying in the wilderness, but that's also a part of what it means to follow Jesus at times. So I don't love being in the public in those kinds of ways. I'm super tired when something like that is done. But I do think that we want Christians to know that God has not left himself without a witness, that there are always those faithful women and men who have not bowed the knee, whatever we are bowing the knee to. And we need those examples of faith leaders who are willing to to take risks publicly at times for the sake of what's, what's true. That's such a powerful statement when you articulated that how certain people in our culture will create deception. And oftentimes it's very dehumanizing for my community. Yes, yes. You know, even taking conversations even around quote unquote CRT, mm-hmm. using it in a very deceptive way, Yeah. try to push a certain narrative or demonizing the other person's truth Yeah. or even sometimes dismantling the truth. Could you speak a little bit to that hypocrisy that you see oftentimes that somehow this hypocrisy of deception somehow has been swallowed by Christians? Well, Pastor Moore, I mean, feel free to correct me or or to rein me in on this one. But the one that historically has just driven me absolutely nuts is the language around fatherlessness in the African-American community. Mm, Come on now. I find myself in these majority white spaces and white people who say, well, the real problem is black fatherlessness. And if these fathers were just present, if these fathers oh my were God. at home, and it's it's a broken record. And I just, I hear it time and time and time again. And at my best, I want to say, this is just ignorance. You're listening to a certain you know talking head and this is what they're telling you. But I do recognize that this is one of those dehumanizing tactics to say, look, as long as I can believe that the struggles that we see in Black communities at times is self-inflicted by this epidemic of fatherlessness, so-called, then I don't have to think about it. I don't have to be reflective. I don't have to be concerned about the larger picture and how I participate in that. I don't have to ask questions about mass incarceration. I don't have to ask questions about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and the war on drugs and mass incarceration and how that has impacted uh, black families in this country. I don't actually have to know how black churches work so hard 
to nurture families, right? to nurture strong marriages, to nurture strong fathers, to build up men in their communities, to take their role. I don't have to know any of that. Think, because I can just put it all onto this mythological thing of the so-called fatherlessness. So, man, yeah, I got to be careful because I get pretty angry about that kind of tactic because it, it really is dehumanizing. And as Christians, we are called to the truth and we don't get to be okay with those sorts of deceptive myths. We have to see the bigger picture. We have to we have to be able to see through those cultural lies. I don't know, Pastor Moore, you call me out if you need to on that one, but that's what I struggle with. No, I appreciate that because I'll tell you why. Because we're looking at the symptom, but we don't want to take a look at the system yeah. that has created the fatherlessness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we want to blame the guy want to arrest the guy walking down the street with no shoes on, but up the road, you took your shoes away from yeah. him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you came along and arrested him for not having the shoes yeah. is a illustration that I use. And you articulated something. Is it a podcast called Motive? Probably Motive. I think it's Motive. Anyway, there's a segment about the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. and how in the early 80s, a lot of rural areas were having some economic downturn. Yeah. And in order for them to create jobs in rural communities, they started building prison. Mm-hmm. Well, in order to populate prisons, yeah. they started sending black men over percentage-wise mm-hmm. into those. Mm-hmm. So you, it's, it's just over and over this, this deception and this continued dehumanizing of a group of people that I believe it breaks God's heart. Absolutely. And Absolutely. unfortunately, too many white Christians buy into that. One of the things, as I've talked to mentors and friends of color over the years about white Christians and white churches, I say, you know, what is the starting point? What would you most want to see? And over and over again, the consensus has been start telling the truth. Mm. And at that point, that seems so basic. And it seems like, aren't we beyond that? Shouldn't it be more complicated than that? Don't we need a bigger strategy (laughs) than that? But time and time again, it has just been tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth about who God is, God's heart for justice, righteousness, shalom, the kingdom. Tell the truth about yourself, about unearned privileges, about the fact that you were born into a certain status quo that impacts you differently than others. Tell the truth about your sisters and brothers in Christ who were born into the same status quo but have experienced it very, very differently. Just tell the truth. Tell the truth about the history. Yes, about history. Yes, tell the truth. Oh. And we're talking to those that know the scripture says and know the truth and the truth shall what? Right. Set you free. Set, Set you, you free. free. Yeah. yeah. My goodness. Such a powerful thought that if we could just get people to tell the truth and of all people to say that to Christians. Yeah. Yep. For those of us who are pastors, I think one of our responsibilities is to recognize where is it that our people's tolerance to the truth is underdeveloped? Hmm. And that's then the task of discipleship, right? So once I've exegeted my congregation and the cultural context, which that's part of the pastoral responsibility, right? I've identified where the immaturity is. Okay, so if I said this truth to you, you would only be able to hear it through a partisan or an ideological lens. Okay, (laughs) that's where you are. That's what we have to work with. Okay, Mm -hmm. now discipleship (laughs) starts. So that next year, 
Next year, your tolerance to the truth has increased. Your maturity wow. has increased. So you can hear more of the truth about who God is, about who you are, about who your neighbor is. But it's politics, Pastor. It's politics. <laughs> it is. That's what we're up against. That's, right. that's absolutely what we're up against. And I get discouraged <laughs> when I remember, you know, cable news has six days a week and we get an hour or two. But we do have the Holy Spirit, and this is profoundly spiritual work. And I do believe that God can change hearts in this way as we faithfully attempt to do it. Because here's the truth. For most of us who are white pastors, white Christians, we just haven't even tried to do this before. So we dare not say it's impossible because the fact of the matter is that most of us haven't even given it a fighting chance. So let's at least give it a fighting chance before we throw the towel and let's at least see what the Holy Spirit could do with our meager efforts and attempts. Awesome. That's right. David, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much for your time. The book is Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. I will have the information in our show notes. Where can we find you on social media? I love following your Twitter account. Not only do you post on a bird-themed app, you are a fan <laughs> of bird watching, which That's you true. will know if you follow him on Twitter. You'll learn a lot about birds, um, which I really appreciate as well. <laughs> How can we find you? Yeah, the easiest thing is just my website, which is dwswanson.com. All the different links are there, dwswanson.com. But man, guys, thank you so much. This is, I love the church, despite all of our stuff. I love the church, yeah. and I'm always amazed by pastors who are serving faithfully in, in our different contexts. So it's been a, a huge honor to get to talk with you both. God bless you. As you walk through the various nature scenes with, uh, I think you talked about your two boys mm -hmm. and pouring into them the conversation around why certain species are missing and what is happening in the environment that's destroying their mm -hmm. habitat and the consequences of that. Yet you are doing that same kind of work as it relates to the kingdom of God, trying your best to make sure that the God's, how do I say this? God's specimen mm -hmm. of humans are all appreciated mm -hmm. and treated equally mm -hmm. so that we can live harmonious in the way God has intended that we do. And uh, I really appreciate having a, a brother like you uh, on the scene and going to be praying for you and your family yes. as you continue not only to do bird watching, but also <laughs> to watch and help the church grow. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Shades of Hope podcast. We will be back again in two weeks with another guest. But Pastor Moore, until then, be blessed. It's good to be with you again. This has been a blessing. As I often say to our audience, uh, for an African-American pastor to have the time to spend with men like David Swanson, it gives me hope yep. that, as he said, that there's still a remnant of folk in the church that are willing to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work. And so thank you, Pastor Jeff, for finding Pastor David and, and bringing him on to our podcast. Yeah. And thank you. God bless you. Have a good afternoon. Yes, sir. Love you. Be blessed. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope, would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. That's Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. 
Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children.